Goodnix explores the journey and meaning of doing good in the world. I get to choose every day when I wake up whether I'm going to work for a Fortune 500 and make a ton of money or work for the movement that is the arc of moral justice. But I realized that I also had an obligation to weaponize my privilege. One day we said, okay, if the city's not going to do it, the state's not going to do it, if some large corporation's not going to do it, why not us? And if there were enough of you, if you were organized enough, if you were loud enough, it would be too difficult for them to ignore you. Good Nix, created by Jeff Leitner, hosted by Annalisa and Relay, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Neely, I have two problems. What are those? I really love the show on professional development, and I have a big blank spot on my chest where my shirt is. First of all, the first one doesn't sound like a problem. I mean, it's so much love, I can't contain it. And you also have, what, a blank spot on your chest? Yeah, where my shirt is. You never grew chest hair? Obviously not. Oh, I know what you should do. You should go to this link in the show notes and get an unprofessional development t-shirt. Gasp! That sounds like exactly what I needed for this premise. So boys and girls, we have t-shirts. We have magnets. We have buttons. Show your unprofessional love. That way you'll get to know who your fellow unprofessionals are when you're walking down the hallway and go, Oh, you listen to that too? Be an unprofessional representative. Welcome, friends, to a very rhetorical episode of Unprofessional Development. I'm Tedisco. And I'm Mealy. And today we've got with us rhetoric warrior um, Daniel French. I discovered him through our good friend um, Harry Duran on Podcast Junkies and said, hey, he's done some teaching and he's done some comedy. And whenever that's whenever we find that combo, we we drag them in. And also, um, I kind of sort of have heard of what rhetoric is, but I figure I could learn a little bit more. So, um, so we figured to get him on no. here and, and, um, and, we'll, and we'll figure it out. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's where everybody is. They've heard the word rhetoric, kind of, sort of, and they're like, ah, yeah. sounds I, interesting. But I can, I know it's got an H in it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Like the yeah. B in doubt. Exactly. So, I, I've, I've a degree in English, so I've spent way too much time talking rhetoric. Oh, cool. The cool, cool. Then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try and then I'll, then I'll play the, the, um, the, the dumb kid. Um, so anyway, we like to get it started with um, just a, a general overview, but instead of like going chronological through um, bios, I have just different stupid um, prompts that I come up with. So today's is the food pyramid. So just describe your your life, your career, what, you know, no, um, as, as a food I, pyramid. I, I'm not going to do that. What? Pull no. <laughs> out all your plans right from the start. I don't, know how to that- retor- I don't know how to rhetorically make you do it. Yeah, how about this? You just start explaining your life and career, and we'll tell you where it fits in the food pyramid. Yeah, you do that because that's okay. okay we can do that. Yes. I don't even know what the food pyramid looks like anymore. We're well, really good at interrupting people. It has people. a big base, <laughs> and then it has some medium stuff, and then some small yeah, stuff. And isn't there some dead people underneath it? Like there are, the, there are there's the a curse. Food pyramid. You get buried underneath the food. The first, yes. the, the, the curse of below the food carbohydrates pyramid. is sarcophagus. I was gonna say. Yeah. I was gonna say. And the curse of the food pyramid is sometimes eggs are at the top and sometimes they're at the bottom. It depends. <laughs> they're either horrible or you should eat them all the time. It depends on what year it is. Yeah. What slaves built the food pyramid? That's the I question. Do, I, I, I don't know <laughs> what slaves built the food pyramid. I think it was done by the four to five doctors who were forced to smoke camel cigarettes in the fifties. That could be it. That could be it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll just give you a quick overview. Like I have a sort of hooky pitch with it. Yeah. PhD in rhetoric. So I'm a rhetorician. Uh, rhetoric is the old Greek word for persuasion. The Greeks invented rhetoric the same time they invented democracy because you can't run one without the other. There you go. And essentially what's happened now is people don't learn rhetoric. They don't understand rhetoric. And now we're in a complicated political environment and they're seeing the outcomes of not really knowing how to use the technology. So that's I was a professor for 20 years, education, rhetoric. There you go. So here's what here's what, what I feel, by the way, before we get too deep into it, I kind of feel like rhetoric is a little bit the way you talk about it. It's really like the force where it's like all around us and it flows through us. But a lot of people have like no idea. And if you don't have any idea, then basically you, you will be the dumb stormtrooper that just repeats whatever someone um, says to you and let someone get away with whatever they want to get away. I with. find your lack of rhetoric disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the rhetoricians that you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good way to look at it. I mean, it's a good pop culture, nice analogy. I think that people could get into and essentially it is like if you take it all the way to its deep theory, rhetoric is language construction, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's conscious construction of language. And sometimes I describe it as rhetoric storms. Like you get these language storms that are very strong and they're very contained and you're born into them mm-hmm. and you think they're real. Right. You think they're natural, but they're not. They're just something that human beings have constructed over time. And suddenly you see the world through this language storm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Oh. Yeah. Now you said rhetoric and democracy go hand in hand. Rhetoric also destroys democracy, right? That's how that works. Well, rhetoric is there's unethical rhetoric and ethical rhetoric, you know, Mm -hmm. and what's happened now is most people when they hear the term, the only time the term is used is by journalists talking about unethical or, you know, hollow rhetoric. It's just rhetoric. So you hear about in politics. Mm -hmm. So everybody thinks rhetoric is just that it's just hollow talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's, that's a tiny subset of, of rhetoric. I, my brand is uh, ethical-only rhetoric. That's what I teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the unethical rhetoric essentially has just been turned loose over the last 10 years, 15 years with cable TV and then digital media. There are no gatekeepers to tell you, hey, don't talk like that. Right. right. That, so that's a manipulative rhetoric. thing to say. Yeah. Well, you know, all the dark all the dark arts of rhetoric, you know, the negative, like you said, the dark side of the force, exactly, yes. mm-hmm. like deception, masquerading, mm-hmm. uh, slander, you know, all these things, which are clear rhetorical techniques, mm-hmm. which are unethical, and they tend to destroy societies. Yes. Yeah. Like there's just a tiny little bit that sort of jumps in there that people still think of as rhetoric, but rhetoric as a covering term is all of language. And in really even a bigger term, it's all of persuasion. Mm-hmm. So there's a book called The Social Construction of Reality that sociologists use to sort of cover rhetoric, which is the idea that, again, it's language. The only thing you've got to perceive the world with is language. Mm-hmm. You can't get out of it. Right, right. So if you're born Christian, you're going to have Christian in your head the rest of your life, no matter what, whether you reject it, accept it, whatever. Right. And right. But it all existed before you. Like if you'd have been born, you would not have spontaneously created the idea of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all given to you right. so, so you, are, you either accept it all or if you want to be a rhetorician you're like you know what i'd like to get involved in my own construction here right so how if there was how would you explain rhetoric to like a child like if there was like a little kid saying what is rhetoric like how would you break it down in a really simple way and then 
uh, after that, in terms of application, like how do we use rhetoric for people to think like, well, I don't, I don't use rhetoric. I just talk to people. Like, how does that work? You have a lot of children on this watching this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. Jimmy? All right. So Jimmy, here's what you do. Uh, you, there's all sorts of informal teaching of rhetoric in the world. Like you can't get, you can't be a human being without influencing other human beings right. with words. Right. The, the easiest one to pull out of childhood is, hey, use your words. Yes. That's yes. literally a rhetorical instruction. Yes. Oh, don't punch somebody in the face. Yes. <laughs> Try words first. Yeah, they hurt more. They yeah. do. <laughs> It lasts. It lasts longer. They'll they'll recover from the punch in the face, mental or physical issue that they can't avoid. Then that'll 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 they'll stick with them. Well, it's like I was thinking about Putin the other day. Like like instead of trying to convince Ukraine, hey, I, I want you back. You right. know, I want to like. There's a lot of benefits of us working together. What do you say? You know, he just physically attacks them because he yes. has weapons, and that's what rhetoric. Rhetoric is a war. It's really a war uh, technology. It's about combat. It's about conflict. And you, you want something from somebody. If they want it to, then great. But if they don't, you design rhetoric to help them get there. Ah. So use words. I guess that answers your question. I don't know. Verbal That's judo? Huh? Verbal judo, sure. Yes. Yeah, linguistic yes. ninja. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. So um give me like a just like a for instance. So in the in the um in the education world so we're going to be having a lesson and i want to like um persuade the kids that we should be all have the the same goal um and so what are what are some like some rhetoric moves that you can kind of like give to us so when i've got a class that maybe hey they don't really want to learn this or they're not really into this thing or I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to persuade them that they can kind of get the group to kind of go into the same direction. Well, like I said, like rhetoric is at its base. The simplest definition is it's the uh, it's the art of effective messaging. Mm -hmm. So if that means to give out information, then you rhetorically design a message to give out information. Well, if you want them to think, feel or do something, persuade, mm -hmm. then you design it to do that. So like you see stuff like with uh, teachers now are forced to be entertainers. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, everybody grows up in an entertainment culture. And if you can at least mock up some entertainment as a public messenger, you're not, you're not going to succeed. Exactly. Yes. So stuff like that, like, well, how do you actually become entertaining? Uh, that was sort of my area when I was uh, in academics. I studied entertainment mm -hmm. and sort of the structures underneath entertainment how do you how do you make things funny how do you make things interesting right and teachers feel that pressure so like you what are you, some of your techniques you're like well i've got to get them interested in this mm -hmm. and you have a lot of informal theory and things that you've learned through experience that you try out rhetoric is just going to say hey here's a whole set of star techniques that typically will work mm -hmm. why don't you try looking at that menu and grabbing ones and applying those okay. like being a character okay you know, you see teachers use this because they understand that entertainment is based on characters. Yes. Look, yes. I'm dressed as a character. Right. There you I don't go. Know if you've ever done that? No, I have. Other than the, other, no, I, I, I have. It's tougher for math, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think that I am. Is it? Just I am to some degree um, a character, and I, I, I can't remember how most of this was off the air. So we were discussing my my comedy. Um, stylings or appreciation so um 
kind of give you like a little more insight into me. Um, like people ask me, like, what would you want to be when you grow up back back in the day if you, if you couldn't be where you are right now? And my goal, and this is going to be like a, a dated reference, but um, is to be Ralph Mouth. Okay. So I want to be the like, I don't want to be the star of the show. I want to be kind of like that, like goofy, you know, dad joke style, like neighbor. And so I do incorporate like just nonsense into my, into my character or I will, um, well, I actually have done this before. So I don't do a character. So this could do you do this? Do you ever, um, have a, an imaginary conversation with like a fictitious student and play both the teacher and the student at the same time? I haven't done that, but like, you know, I deal with literature, so I constantly have characters I can pretend to be and mock and laugh okay. at. And, yeah. So I'll just go, so Mr. Mealy, what are we going to learn today? Well, you da, 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 da. oh, is that that's interesting? We learned something about blah, 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 blah before. And then I'll just, I'll just kind of like, and I'll, I, and it's I'll, it's a very I'll, sock puppet voice. Oh, it is. Oh, it's all the way. I, I like haven't gone full sock puppet. Like, like, <laughs> I, I never to. go full sock puppet, kids. <laughs> That's today's lesson. I, what's funny is there's a there's there's literally a sock puppet in my room that a student had given me that like I'm that like I'm tempted to just stick on and 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 sad sock puppet. This kid had no sewing skills and hot glued some ping pong balls on there like like all crooked and it, it, it looks like it was assembled by like a one armed man in the dark. But um, <laughs> I like it. I like the sock. I like the uh, sock puppet uh, technique. Anything like that, like uh, like in stand up, stand up has this whole list of techniques mm -hmm. that I have I actually have a course that I teach uh, entertainment for teachers. Okay. Like stand up, all the secrets of stand up comedy, because stand up is essentially the same thing one person talking to an audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But professional stand ups, because you've got to make an intense experience, have developed all these techniques mm -hmm. that you can easily just go in and poach from. Right. And the one you were just doing, like an act, it's called an act out in stand up, right? Right. So you just take the characters and you literally do them in front of people um, as monologue. Right, right. And if you watch stand up and you look for that technique, you'll notice that about 60 percent of st all stand up is act outs. Yeah, I, I can. There's wow. like a bunch of examples that I can come up with in my head that I, that I can that I can see right now. You know, and again, I'm an old man. So I go back to like Eddie Murphy, like Delirious is like a, a ton of, of yeah, act outs. He plays outs. a lot of characters. That's part of his, you know, his advantage right. to good actor. So he can right. actually characters. Right. Yeah, it's, it's why uh, stand up and sketch comedy are usually so closely linked, I guess. Yeah. Like a yeah. lot of stand ups like write, wind up writing for sketch comedy and vice versa. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a natural like. Again, we're a visual culture and we're used to seeing things done in stories. So one-liner jokes and things like that, a little harder for people to process. A lot of times people will tell the joke, then they'll act out the joke. Right. And yes. so instead of a 30-second or one-minute bit, it becomes a four or five-minute bit. Right, right, right. You set up the you set up the idea or the concept and then and then you just kind of like well, that, that this is what that's gonna look like when 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 that happens. Right. right. So that's those are rhetoric techniques. They're just placed within entertainment and you can you can describe them, you can have theory behind them, and then you can teach them to other people. Then you can apply them and be more effective. I wound up like at that realization through through a backdoor because like I, you know, English teacher. So I was studying like I, I was introduced to rhetoric through poetry, like uh, poetic rhetoric is, you know, uh, your your metaphors, your similes, your, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the flowers of rhetoric. And I was also a big fan of stand-up, and it took me a really long time to link the two and realize, oh, this is the same thing. Like they're just 
It's just using language to make you feel something. It's just a debate on what you want people to feel. Yeah. Linguistic techniques are linguistic techniques. You know, that's why I said the Greeks sort of documented this stuff so long ago. The mm -hmm. same techniques exist. You know, ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what your country can do for you. Is Chiasmus. I know that one. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, the old, it's one of the oldest Greek techniques there are. Mm -hmm. And so rhetoricians go in and learn all that stuff as mechanical technique. And then if you can kind of absorb it and use it sort of naturally, then it becomes, you know, you can create it. But yeah. they're really just studying what's what techniques are there. And why I, they're I do wish another culture had invented it. So I don't have to remember how to spell onomatopoeia. Right. Um, I don't even try with the Greek stuff like chiasmus. <laughs> I would have I would have screwed that up. Like I <laughs> I don't know what is Chiasmus a person or a technique? So it comes from the Chi, which is an X. Okay. And so it's when you take something, say it one way, and then flip it. Like fair is foul and foul is fair from Macbeth. Uh, That's Chiasmus. It's better to be um, a smart feller than a fart smeller. That's the one that yes, I know. Yes, there you go. Thank you. See? <laughs> yeah, and there are hundreds of those techniques. They're literally described as exactly this is how you do them. Like there's yeah. a bunch of others that are close to Chiasmus, but they have variations. Like Chiasmus is... You, you start with this word, end with this word, start with the end word and end with the start word. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's very structured. And so it sounds very poetic. And like, yeah, poetry studies this, English studies this. I was an English undergrad and then moved over to speech comm because I, I just got tired. Because you speech. wanted to make money? I wanted. I got tired of sitting <laughs> in writing, you know. Just, <laughs> get out there and talk to some people. Solid. There you go. There yeah. You go. The, most English people don't want to talk to anyone. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, comedy writers in LA are really interesting. Like Hollywood comedy writers, half of them are just total introverts. Like you never hear them say a funny thing. But if you put them in front of a computer and let them write, man, it's just magic. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So it's and then and did you and you worked for did you you did some of that like in a writer's room or you did it independently like that? Or what, what did you do and who did you work with just out of curiosity? Yeah, I always ran at least two careers now kind of three, but I was education. And then I also was a stand-up. I started stand-up the first time I started teaching at the University of Louisville when I was 24. Uh, I also started stand-up at the same time. And you weren't afraid of getting fired? Ah, what do they know? They don't <laughs> <laughs> come out to the comedy club. Before smart you're fine. Um, I was teaching at the University of Louisville and uh, I was a part-time faculty, so I needed other stuff to do. So uh, there was a comedy club right around the corner. And I went over there and I did an open mic night and um, ended up doing it. I've done it now for what, almost 35 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I did stand up all the time as a part-time job. Even th when I was getting my PhD, I would go out on the weekends, do biker bars in Florida uh, and then go back and talk to, you know, 18 year olds on the, during the week. Uh, and then I morphed over into a comedy writer. I was always more of a writer than a performer. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing for other standups and they started buying stuff from me. And then I moved to LA and started looking for uh, TV jobs and I got hired at the best dance sports show period. Uh huh. Oh, wow. That show. Uh, that was a fun show. Making fun yeah. of athletes. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to the late, late show, which is James Corden right now. And yeah. Then, yeah. Then I was a Dennis Miller and uh, yeah. So I moved around. Oh, wow. Okay. That Dennis Miller, who's someone who strikes me as like, a, like when he found out your rhetorician would be like a, he would be really into it because he's very not um, interested in anyone. 
<laughs> He's just interesting. Anyone that's not named Dennis Miller doesn't really appear on his radar. <laughs> I can hear that too. Yeah, yeah. He was funny. I mean, he's a super talented guy. Uh, oh. I, you know, his politics went off off the deep end, but yeah, he went a little yeah. far there. For for for, for his, yeah, recently, his nickname so. for me was um, the Thing from uh-huh. uh, Fantastic Four. Yes, ben, so he called me Ben Grimm. He'd be like, "Hey, Ben." because you're bald because i'm bald and muscular i kind of look like the guy <laughs> yeah i can see that a little bit you're not made of bricks though no, um, Dennis Miller. yeah he's funny i, I you know but as oh. a person I, I never really got to know him very much i just worked okay. yeah his uh, I, I loved his his snl um you know weekend update and, and also like i would and i i really think there was a that they should have given him i guess it, it didn't appeal enough to enough people when when he was that brief stint on Monday night football. I thought that was, um, I thought they didn't let that, let it go long enough to see like who they could actually bring in and, and do that, you know, and, and just, and yeah, keep it interesting. I don't know. It was a weird idea. Like, I think it was because Cosell could bridge, you know, normal people world and articulate. Yeah. So like, oh, let's get somebody else like that. But Dennis, yeah. he's too far into the arcane and yeah. Yeah. And, and didn't really care. I don't think that there was a football game going on very much. Yeah, it didn't matter. I don't think so. <laughs> let's also so before we started uh the podcast uh we were talking about bad movies that we actually like and will defend let's also not forget dennis miller was the star of the absolute smash hit tales from the crypt bordello of blood oh, um wow. never saw that one where okay. he he told jokes and killed vampires um, oh wow the ballroom blitz it, it was it's like, legendary I, I, it's I phenomenal once well as a side character usually a villain <laughs> no, yeah. he was he was this action movie star wow yeah i'm not familiar with that so okay i'm definitely have to look that up and and or uh, or don't or or don't that's, <laughs> that's your other option those those are the two options they are they are the two options <gasps> all right so while while we're here we're talking about this uh this superpower called rhetoric um i i know we kind of mentioned a little bit about the dark side of rhetoric and i know a lot of times when we talk about the dark sides of rhetoric it's easy to to grab onto the the low-hanging fruit talk about like you know dictators and talk about uh you know uh, horrific things but like thinking about like everyday stuff you know for for a teacher like when do we everyday misuse rhetoric or use rhetoric to to bad ends uh how, how do we use that and how can we avoid using rhetoric in a dark way you mean failed rhetoric or unethical rhetoric? Which one, like for teachers, like they have a lot of failed rhetoric. Yeah, let's talk unethical. Okay, so like the first thing everybody wants to do when they find out I have a degree in persuasion is to haul over the world word manipulator. You know, mm-hmm. my, my world. I'm like, well, you mani- manipulate people. I'm like, well, uh, I influence people. You know, I tell people because I'm an ethical persuader, I tell people I'm influencing them. I'll tell you what techniques I'm using. Now, whether you can resist them or not is not my problem, you know, but unethical techniques are just easier. And like you mentioned it, like right right now, like dictatorial and authoritarian regimes, starting with the Nazis and a little bit before, actually, um, Italy, a lot of the stuff was developed by the fascists, developed propaganda rhetoric, you know, mm-hmm. and it's really a powerful form of rhetoric. But it's very studyable. It's it's not any kind of magic. Things like like creating an invisible um, enemy, mm-hmm. you know, 
like this weird conspiracy thing that everybody is attaching to right now. It's yeah. been around forever. Like, you know, then you attach it to some, you know, group that you can see that you can easily defeat. Yeah. You know, like immigrants. Well, there mm-hmm. aren't that many immigrants coming in every year, you know, at the border, illegal immigrants. So let's take on those guys. Let's go after them and decide that they're the invisible thing that's creating murder and destruction of the of the uh, society. So it's a very, you know, recognizable technique. Um, but right now, there's no, like I said, there's no gatekeepers. Before, they'd hand out pamphlets and things like that on the sidewalk, and everybody, you know, would give them the finger and keep walking. But, <laughs> but now, digital, you know, it's there. They're bombarded. And it's incredibly well-produced. It's incredibly funded. It's everywhere, and it's instant. So it's much harder to resist. That's, I use that technique, okay? But what I do is... Um, the the enemy is the curriculum mm-hmm. and the and the curriculum creators and and you know and the that, test yeah the test right yeah I'll, I'll even say like even when I've made the test I will still say so when they make the test they are going to want you to know this you know what I mean right you know even though like I'm like I'm the, I'm the creator of the test and so I will the calls coming from inside the house me right. it's it's me and it's me and you guys versus this um yeah. mean content versus like instead of me and the me and the mean content versus you and when i can get them to say hey it's 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 the two of us versus the content then now we're now we can work together and you're gonna you know you're gonna um you're gonna work and you're gonna also gonna come to me for whatever wisdom and knowledge i have to help you defeat the content and now we're now we're um having having mutual enemies so i definitely um use that very, very consciously yeah and i think that's uh you know when you look at the usefulness of rhetoric, like you asked me, what are the pragmatics of this? Mm-hmm. Things like that. People come up with informal techniques. They they sort of get themselves towards technique um, intuitively because you're right. like, oh, this might work. And you experiment with it and it does work. And great. Here we go. If you go and start studying rhetoric, you start to raise the quality level, the sophistication of what you're doing and the, mm-hmm. the conscious use of it. So it gets better and better and better. But that kind of collusion, collusion against a shared enemy, very standard, you know, long, long term, been around for a long time uh, rhetoric technique. I guess then the difference would be that Mealy's giving a real enemy, like an actual thing that they need to defeat. Yeah, he's being as, a little dicey. As opposed to like making up an enemy just to get people to agree with me. Well, there's degrees of ethicality and unethicality, right? You're sort of kind of at the border because... Uh, if you are out, also the test giver and you're not giving saying that, then you're not being transparent. Right. So that's that's an unethical technique. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the the bane of many teachers' existence. Let's let's see if we can use rhetoric to to um do this. So how do we persuade them um not to use their cell phones or want to be on their cell phones without being dictatorial or um you know just you know, that way, but how, how, how do we persuade them that that's, um, um, that they can work with us on that way? Well, you know, again, everybody understands intuitively a lot of the, the mega principles within rhetoric. So punishment reward, right? Mm-hmm. So positives and negatives, right? So yeah. Coward people, and stick. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people go to negative instantly with the young, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. parents do this. Like I, I have a adaptation of this stuff of persuasion for parents about quit using negatives to, you know, control your kids. Right. Because it's just a bad training system. It mm-hmm. basically makes you the enemy. Yeah. 
you know, I, I have a joke in my uh, stand up about like, just think about kids experience. They grew up in a land of giants. <laughs> you know, a big giant is in their house that tells them what to do all the time. Yes. You know, so you're essentially a giant who walks around with the word no mm-hmm. on your forehead. Just imagine if you went home tonight and there was a giant in your house, <laughs> you know, and you went to the refrigerator and you're like, I'm going to get something here. And the giant's like, what do you think you're doing? Like, <laughs> I, I'm getting a beer. <laughs> no, you're not. Beers are for giants. <laughs> you're drinking milk and you're going to enjoy it. Yes. Like, giant, I don't even like milk. I, don't talk back to your giant. <laughs> disrespectful to giants it's a crazy way to organize a relationship it's based on power and it's based on the no and all that mm-hmm. and so you become an enemy mm-hmm. which is a bad idea as a parent right and everybody's like oh teenagers they're all like this no they're not they're finally got enough power to resist your mm-hmm. dictatorial authoritarian regime yes mm-hmm so why yeah. set it up like that? Set it up as like kind of what you're doing in your class where you're like, now let's be partners in this. You know, I'm, I'm not here to dominate you. I'm here to enable you. Okay. So the cell phone thing, actually, that's one of the ways I uh, subtitle the, the entertainment for techniques for teachers, mm-hmm. how, to, how to be more interesting than a cell phone. Okay. Uh-huh. So yeah. The reason why I start with this is because the cell phone has so much positivity to it, mm-hmm. so much stimulation. Right. So much control. Yes. So much variety. Yeah. There's never been anything like that ever. Yeah. It's like an unbeatable amount of stimulation. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I can play a game. I can watch a video. I I can be passive. I can be interactive. I can actually be learning stuff. There's a million things. And it's this close to your face. Like you don't get that close to the student's face when you talk to them. No. But if you did. My coffee breath would kill them. Yes. But guess yeah. what? Like, if you get that close to somebody's face, they are no longer paying attention to their cell phone. That's true. <laughs> so that's the solution. Okay. We're all going to stick our faces close together. Well, the solution is to realize you're in competition with a cell phone. Right. Right. And, and if you're going to beat it negatively, then you just use domination, like put it away, mm-hmm. you know, all the direct command and control, punishments, all that stuff, which again, right. creates a negative environment, which I don't like. I don't like to work within negative environments. Mm-hmm. So you create a positive environment. Some people will try to do rewards with the cell phone itself. Be like, well, mm-hmm. you can use it for five minutes or whatever, or you can use it to get done with your, you're trying to beat the cell phone, trying to get it out of the environment, not give them more cell phone. Right. You know, it's also, it's become a Christopher Walken sketch, more cell phones. So what can you do to out entertain a cell phone? Right. turns out there's a lot of stuff. Like, okay. Uh, like even creating false conflict, uh, like people, first thing you pay attention to as a human being in the environment is uh, danger. Mm-hmm. So if there's a fight or something crazy happens in the environment. Mm-hmm. Everybody, they're not looking at their cell phone. They're trying to understand. No, they're recording on their cell phone. Yes, they are. <laughs> well, but that may be that may be true too. But it's <laughs> the conflict itself becomes the dominant thing. Right. Because right. human beings attemu- uh, attend to the most stimulating thing in their environment. Right. So become the most stimulating thing in their environment. Okay. It's a lot of work. I'm not saying it's it easy. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I knew there was, I know there's not an easy answer to it, but I was, I was hoping maybe, maybe, you know, since you have all this wisdom that maybe you had one that, that was, that was, yeah. 
Well, okay. I can I can teach you small wins, but okay. medium wins and full wins, you know, are a lot of work. Yeah. Just throwing a, you know, I used to throw, I, I would just throw an eraser over their heads. Because <laughs> everybody goes, what just happened? I'm like, yes. ah, I just got you out of your head. Yeah. yeah. You're not paying attention to that. I was going to say, my, my um, go-to is to um, drop in um, inappropriate random things in the middle, in the middle of stuff like that. And then the 10 kids that are paying attention are now laughing hysterically. And the other, the other 20 are like, what did he say? And I'm like, that's why you need to like pay attention. Cause you never know when I'm, when I'm, when I'm going to make like a fart joke or whatever it's going to be, you know? So, well, it's a lot to ask. Uh, you know, you don't go to a comedy club for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a lot to ask of students to attend to, let's all admit it, a mediocre entertainer at best. Yes. Oh yeah. You know, across all these different, you know, times during the day, it's just a stupid system. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and let's be honest, even if you are the most entertaining teacher ever, like if you're getting the kids after lunchtime, they've been, you, you go to a comedy club for eight hours. Like it doesn't matter how good the standup is by hour three, you're burnt out. You can't, yes. you can't absorb that much. And sometimes they just need a break. Sometimes they need to get out of their seats, yes. you know, and they just need something different. Well, and you yeah. guys don't have alcohol, like uh, no, exactly. You know, I mean, not legally. Well, comedy clubs yeah. have all sorts of crazy advantages, but go to a comedy club for the second show on Friday night, uh-huh. ten o'clock show. It's terrible every time. It's almost yeah. always just awful because everybody's exhausted. They worked all week. They've already had food, and it's awful. And every stand-up knows it. it's worst show of the week. Interesting, yeah. huh? So I'm. Um, Bring us on, on a different tangent because we were talking about the, the light and dark sides of this force. Um, and, and you said both these terms, but I want I, I want a clear definition. So how do you separate persuasion and manipulation? What is the, the difference? It's just technique is the only difference. Like um, ethical, ethical persuasion reveals itself. It doesn't try to hide things. So if I'm saying like I'm here, so one of the things I do in my podcast is I convert the right. I have right wing people on and I do active conversions on them because I think the right is problematic for a democracy. It has nothing to do with your beliefs or the way you want the country run or anything like that. It's the fact that they use unethical persuasion techniques and you can't run a democracy if it's dominated by unethical persuasion. It just doesn't work because you don't. Because if you do, the terrorists win. The terrorists win. <laughs> the, the information terrorists win. Like yeah. You can't look at our public discourse right now and think you're getting good information. No. Right. And everybody, so it discredits all the public talk. So how do you make a choice when you vote? You get bad information that you don't trust, partial information. You don't know any of these people you're voting for. Mm-hmm. That's a horrible way to run a democracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you don't clean it up, then you're going to have a bad democracy. And that's what's essentially has happened is our public discourse needs to be cleaned up. That's not probably going to, that's probably not going to happen. (laughs) Well, I I disagree. Like that's what rhetoricians do. So if it's difficult, it may be difficult. Like Uh clearly it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, Then we go in and we make more sophisticated uh, work in there to make it actually happen. And that's the appeal of rhetoric. It's like, yeah, complicated stuff requires sophisticated technique. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. not a. There's no simple answer in, in, in honest rhetoric, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, honest rhetoric can be bad rhetoric. It doesn't mean it's 
it's effective. It just means it's ethical. Right. Right. Uh, I think go back to what you said, like, I, I think it is possible. I don't think it's possible with the current setups we have with like uh, full blown unadulterated social media. Um, I think there needs to be more, you know, stops there, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Like um, I've done a little bit of work on freedom of speech stuff, uh, the rhetoric of freedom of speech. And I just did a podcast last week on the rhetoric of guns. So right now I'm, on my podcast, I bring in other rhetoricians and we dive into these issues that seem intractable that you can't fix easily. Abortion, race, <laughs> guns mm-hmm. in America. And you're like, well, what can rhetoric offer here? And so rhetoric, the first thing you do is you pull back and you look at the whole ecology. And you're like, what's working against me? What's working for me? How do I turn these down and how do I amp these up? And, you know, those basic things when you have an ecology to work with and you can specifically go in and do real work. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, like this idea of the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. You watch people attack it now for the last couple of weeks um, and they've pulled out, this is a rhetorical technique, they've pulled out a word and they're redefining it. So the the primary, the first um, power within rhetoric is the definition of terms. Right. Mm-hmm. So well-regulated militia. Yeah, yeah. How did well-regulated well, well militia morph over into unregulated population? But see, then the other side goes going, shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed. And they just shout that to the ceiling. And then, and then, and then, then they, they, then they say, I don't hear about your well-regulated militia. I'm like, shall not be infringed. You're infringing on me when you're trying to define that word. Sure. But that's why like logos and argument and logic and information are not a very good technology. Mm-hmm. They're really easy to break. So if somebody screams this repetitive, I'm not listening to you. I'm not going to intellectually engage with you. Mm-hmm. You've got to go around that and go into a different technique. Mm-hmm. So the book that I, I wrote a book during the pandemic about this, like I was never really into politics and political rhetoric. And then Trump showed up and complicated, you know, politics for Americans. Yeah, he did. He did. He did. People were like, what? What is this? How do yes. I deal with this? Yes. And yes. we vote for Biff Tanner. Yes, I know. Other countries have dealt with this for a long time. Yeah. It just never could get a foothold in yeah. America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John Mulaney's the horse, the horse in the hospital um, <laughs> uh, analogy. Yeah. Have you ever heard John Mulaney talk about the horse in the hospital? Oh, so he's talking about it, this is like the very beginning of it. He's like, he's like, he's like, he said he didn't really care about politics either. He said, because it's all just really boring. He said, but now. There's a horse in the hospital. We've never had a horse in the hospital before. So I'm really curious. What's what's the horse going to do next? He's like, oh, my goodness, he's running down here. Oh, look, the horse is in the other. Like it all of a sudden became like something to pay attention to. Whereas like for the previous Mm -hmm. 20 years, it was just kind of like, well, I mean, you know, oh, taxes or, you know, whatever the whatever the whatever the thing is that people are upset about or whatever. It's like, oh, I just go and I do my job. And, you know, generally it's nice to hear people argue about oil again. Yeah, it, you know, generally, generally nothing. It's so nothing, nice. You know, yeah. For a long time, it was, it was it was like, oh, there's things we care about, but most of the time, my day to day was not really affected by who the president was. It wasn't really, you know. Yeah, you rich know. countries typically don't have to deal with these issues. Right. Right. Like middle class has enough money to live, and that's basically what all anybody really wants. Yeah. Nobody wants to have to constantly fight power. No. And that's all politics is. It's a constant yeah. fight for power. Right. It doesn't yeah. stop. So Americans have always had the nice space of being like oh i don't even have to pay attention to this and it still runs well how about right. that right the red it's teams win today and the blue team wins next week and and that, as long as the, the, you know whatever they'll, they'll yeah. we'll be a happy media most of the time 
But starting with Gingrich back in the 80s with the contract for America and stuff, the, the neo-extreme uh, conservative right found like, hey, unethical techniques work really well. They're yeah. not defending themselves against these. Yeah. And so let's use them. Like even within government, the whole use of blocking uh, legislation to shut down the government uh, as a power move. Mm-hmm. McConnell is just another example of that. It's like, oh, I've got the power to not let this ever come out for a vote. Mm-hmm. One guy in the entire government can just stop a 350 million population nation from getting something. <laughs> That's an insane amount of power. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's always worked because they're like, oh, well, you can exert a little bit of that power, but we still have to get things done. And everybody agreed to that system as kind of an honor system in politics. The right came in as like, nope, we're going to hack into this. We're going to use every unethical technique and we're going to grab power. And they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just technique. Right. Mm-hmm. So you need to go back in and reset the democracy, reset public discourse with some new rules yeah. that know how to protect the hacks because the, the code is too too vulnerable. So you're saying we should try turning it off and on again? Yeah, let's reboot it. Democracy 2.0. Let's reboot yes. democracy. <laughs> like clearly that document. We need to not- like make America like great again. Is that oh, oh. no? <laughs> Make America great for the first time. <laughs> there, we go. there we go. Actually live up to the promise that you <laughs> throw at everybody in your rhetoric all the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, so normally around this time, when we get towards the end of the thing, we like to hear um, uh, some funny stories from the world of education, little anecdotes or a little, um, you know, um, something you might tell at a, at a um, you know, at a cocktail party, but I can't believe this happened in my class or whatever. So um, if you have one or two of those where like, you know, things went sideways or hysterical or you, you had a, a funny moment, we love to hear those. So, so hit us. You're going to ask couple. me to go back into the trauma of thinking about teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I never taught. I always taught college. So, um, you know, most of my stories are horrible administrative people and things like that. Oh, we love those uh, too. I do remember like when I knew it was time for me to end, uh, stop teaching college. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go on. I yes. had a student come in and, you know, the only time they ever came to office hours was to, you know, try to weasel their way through uh, grades. Yeah. Hey, you know, why, why stop and talk to an expert who's there for free, you know, about something, you know, right. I mean, not for free, but <laughs> well, they've already paid for it. It's just an added That's service. You know? Right. All right. And, so I had a student come in once and I knew she was going to come in because you know, I kind of got this feeling that she has, she was way below passing, you know, but I passed everybody in college. I used to tell them like this system, uh, if you show up and turn everything in, you get a C, put any effort into it at all. You get a B almost everybody gets a B. If you want an A, you're going to have to impress me. That's the way I, I grade. There you go. So uh, she, she had like a fit in the fifties or something. Oof. And I heard this knock at my door. I was doing something I was actually interested in and (laughs) I turned and looked and I saw who it was and I physically shuddered. (laughs) (laughs) To the point where she said, are are you okay? I'm like, yeah, come on in. (laughs) And I just couldn't do it anymore. I just could not be the, you know, as a teacher, you have all this pressure to be a moral deliverer of soul and I was like, right. I don't care. <laughs> right. I'm not qualified to be here. Right. It's, it's so much energy to care that much. Yes. Yeah. 
that's a that's a thing that I, I guess I wrestle with to some degree. It's that's a thing that, and I meet people who are the the ap- absolute opposite way that they are like a hundred percent gatekeeper, and they're like, well, I'm not letting anyone out of here without you know, you know, they're they're doing the Mitch McConnell thing. Like I'm, I'm graduation yeah. goes through this one, and if I, if, I, if you if you want to graduate, I've decided what the requirements are based on whatever other things I've read or or, or seen, and so I'm going to do that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, no. But I don't want to be also like. I don't know. I want, I want, I want people to, um, to learn, but that, that reminds me of, I still remember this. It was my first year teaching and this girl, she's like, she had to see in the class. She was, she was not bright. Okay. Um, just sweet. Just funny. Um, and in fact, like she would tell me regularly and she was only like a, she was a sophomore. Like her plan was to, um, go to college and, um, marry a doctor. Like it was like, 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 like she was like, you know, viable like, strategy in America. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and you know, like, I'm like, okay, well, that's the thing. And so like her, um, she's like, well, I really want to be, she's like, what kind of cake do you want? I was like, like, like what? She's like, I want to bake you a cake. I'm like, I love cake, you know, like all kinds of cake. I said, but I don't think like, if you bake me a cake, I'm going to give you a B. She's like, no, but really like what kind of cake? <laughs> and she wouldn't let it go. It, like it went on for like over a week. Like every, like every day. Could offer. Like, What's that? Could offer a cake for a grade. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, I heard you I, to give her a grade. You get a cake. I, I should have taken it. I should have taken it. I said, well, you know, sure. Bring, bring, bring us, bring us some cake. So anyway, guys, we, we, um, we really appreciate, um, you coming on here. Um, so we're going to put all the links in the show notes. So, but like just cause some places they can, um, like if they really want to just like, one-stop shopping what's the first place they should go that all this stuff piqued their interest and they want to find out you know about books you've read and things you've taught and courses you've got and the podcast and all that the, the like sweet one- daniel french merch there yes. you go merch. uh rhetoricwarriors.com is my site okay and, uh, youtube has all the uh episodes of the of the podcast they're okay. also on all the verbal uh, platforms right you can buy my book on amazon it's called the 21 coliseums of persuasion cool um, cool name yeah, it's it's essentially Aristotle's original definition of persu- of rhetoric is the ability to see the whole menu and choose the right thing for the right person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nobody knows the whole menu, so I just laid it all out for people. Nice. Like, there you go. Love if, it. If you nice. want to figure it out and use that, um, and then if you just want jokes, go to Twitter. My rhetoric war at rhetoric war on Twitter. I just post jokes all day long about <laughs> politics and straight things, whatever. I just whatever I. It's a, hits my head. I put on the on Twitter. Not jokes, say. rhetoric. Yes, both. Like <laughs> rhetorical jokes. Rhetoryucks, you could say. Thank there you. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. Rhetor- I'm out. Rhetoryucks. Close. Got <laughs> keep massaging, but you're in the right <laughs> ballpark. Uh, all right. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank, thank, th- thank you for coming on, um, Mr. French, Daniel, whatever. We didn't even establish what we were supposed to call you, but anyway, Mr. Mr. Warrior, Doctor, but, uh, <laughs> Doctor, Doctor we, Dan. We really appreciate your time, and we appreciate having all these things to to think about. And I think this is really is like a jumping off point for a lot of people to kind of get deeper into like thinking about how they talk and what they're listening to and all that kind of stuff. So, um, please, guys, follow him. Go to all those places and do that stuff. And as we always say at the end, stay unprofessional. Thank you and stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional. Stay unprofessional.